Welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but we better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, and so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, for the first segment, we're going to run updates on two stories that I've talked about here before, the first being Hamas's links with Iran, and then also the lab leak theory in regards to China and COVID-19. So both of these stories have been derided in the media in various ways. Some have been called conspiracy theories. But new reporting this week brings more confirmation to the table that both of these stories has a lot of truth to them. So we're going to hit both of them. And then in the second segment, we'll go. We'll cover the latest numbers on the COVID-19 pandemic and go through why the pandemic is basically over at this point, at least in the United States. And then finally, the light item segment is going to be dedicated to the team that has caused me immense amounts of emotional and mental trauma this week, the Nashville Predators, which are a hockey team, if you do not are not aware of that. It's playoff time in the NHL, and I think that's all you need to know right there. So that's the agenda for this week's show, so we can jump right in from there. So whether it's been by podcast, newsletter, or column, I've covered a lot of ground on the two stories that I mentioned earlier. The first being, last week in particular, the episode was pretty much all about the Hamas and Israeli conflict. And then the other that I've covered a lot of ground on is the lab leak theory regarding COVID-19. Now, there was, as I said, there was more news that's broken on them this week, and I wanted to do an update on both of them because I thought it was worth mentioning on both because it's interesting to watch narratives around these stories crumble in real time. So first, we'll do the update on Israel and Hamas. Since I did that last week, it's probably a little bit fresher on your mind. So... There's a ceasefire in place between Israel and Hamas right now that went into place on Friday. So far, it seems to be holding. I actually kind of expect it to hold and at least hold for a few years here because Hamas always does these things. They have these patterns where they will attack Israel. They will fire rockets. They'll do their thing. They'll get their ceasefire once they start getting thumped by Israel and back off and rebuild over some time. But one of the ways they rebuild, obviously, in my mind, is by getting funding and support from Iran. And we got more on that front this week. And I think it's very important to cover this because it comes into play with the Biden administration, specifically the Biden administration's seeking to negotiate with Iran and restart the nuclear deal originally signed under Barack Obama and then ditched under President Trump. So, with that said, the Wall Street Journal reported this week, they went through a story talking about how 
Hamas was being funded and helped out by Iran. So, in this vein, you have Iran sponsoring a terrorist organization to attack an ally of the United States. So that's the framing I think you have to take this in. So here's what the Wall Street Journal said in their report. They said, Over the past 10 days, Palestinian militants have unleashed one of the most intense attacks on Israel in decades, firing more than 4,000 short-range rockets and deploying a new explosive drone intended to evade the country's Iron Dome air defense system. Behind this onslaught... Defense officials in Israel and security analysts say is an extensive arsenal built with technical expertise from Iran and growing local skills in arms manufacturing. Israeli military leaders say they have destroyed more than two dozen missile building factories in Gaza with airstrikes in recent days. But they estimate that the militants still have thousands of rockets left and the technical capacity to begin building more when the fighting stops. Iran and Palestinian militant groups haven't kept their security ties secret, with leaders of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad touting their arms cooperation with Tehran. Last week, General Ismail Kwani, I'm guessing this is his name, head of Iran's elite Quds force, called Hamas leader Ismail, uh, can't pronounce his name, but anyway, he conducted him to offer moral support on, his, on Iranian state TV. The most advanced short-range rockets fired at Israel, called the Broad 3, appear to be based on an Iranian model, which has been used by Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. So that missile is less sophisticated than rockets used by Iran's own forces, according to the Wall Street Journal, and the simple design is likely meant to allow groups like Hamas to build them. The rocket appears to be tested in at least two locations inside Iran. And they quote an expert who says, The available information indicates an Iranian role in the missile development that goes far beyond mere technical or financial assistance. Now, it's worth noting, too, so at the top of this report, they mentioned the fact that there are now drones being used by Hamas to attack Israel. And over this past weekend, there was a report that a Iranian factory that made drones mysteriously blew up. So Iran, of course, blames Israel for this. Israel is mum, quiet, not saying a word. You know, I would say it's pretty safe that Israel did this, since this is where these drones are being used against them. But I also say think that it's another sign, just as the Wall Street Journal is reporting here on the missiles, that Iran has direct involvement with this flare-up between Hamas and Israel. They have direct hands here, they have direct support here, and they are directly involved in funding, helping push operations, and pushing support through here. And that includes these missiles that you're seeing the Iron Dome shoot down. So the quick thing you know, I want to note here is that it's not a conspiracy to point any of this out. And it's not well, it's just it's not a conspiracy, and it's not something you would say, you know, that's just you have to you can ignore like some of these news organizations are doing. It's actually very important to note this because the Biden administration is continuing with its Iranian negotiations. While they're still, while you have Iran still here openly supplying a terrorist organization that is attacking an American ally, that is something that one, no Republican needs to be supporting that, and two, I don't actually think you're going to find many hawkish members of the Democratic Party want to support this either, 
just because this is pretty blatantly bad on every front. I don't think your Joe Manchins of the world are going to support this. I don't think your your Kirsten Cinemas are going to support this just because this is not good and it's not a serious form of negotiations when you're, uh, you know, it's just not good to have a country that you're trying to negotiate with out here actively attacking your allies, especially when there is a direct trail here, when they're praising each other on Iranian state television. So the thing that's also clear here is that if you give Iran any sanctions relief, and that sanctions relief is going to end up helping Iran by putting money into their economy, it is very clear that that money is going to end up going into more of these terrorist organizations, which are going to target places like Israel or be used against the United States in its operations around the Middle East. So you can talk all you want to about regional balance and other things like that, which the Biden administration does think about these things. They think, you know, you have to balance all these countries, you need to have all these different things. But on a very basic level, you cannot have a country that you're negotiating with fund attacks on your allies. That's just stupidity on its face. You just can't do that. And so as we watch these negotiations with Iran push forward, you know, I think the ceasefire is going to take sort of the Israel and Hamas story out of the news. People don't want to talk about it. It's like pulling teeth just to get some of these these press commentators to even talk about all the attacks that are happening in Jews on the streets of American cities. They don't want to talk about the uptick of, you know, hate crimes against Jews in the United States because it's occurring from these very staunch pro-Palestinian groups. They are the ones who are going out and attacking Jews in the streets. That's got to stop. You've got to jail those people, and the media doesn't want to cover them. You're only seeing these types of things on social media and from generally Jewish or conservative websites who are purporting these things out. And I think you're going to have to watch this long term, because even if this begins to die down a little bit here and not be as prominent of a story because the media doesn't want to cover it here, it is going to matter when it comes to negotiations with Iran, because the senators and these representatives are not going to forget this moment, and no one else is going to let them forget it, too. You cannot negotiate it with a country that sponsors terrorism. And that's what Iran does. That is one of their requests. They do not want some of their forces designated as state terrorist organizations. But that's exactly what they are. You have to treat them that way. So I think it's going to come into play here as we see these negotiations between Iran and the United States move forward. The Biden administration has had people talking, I believe it was in Vienna over the last couple of weeks. With this flare up here, I don't think you're going to see anything here for the next few months, but this is something that Biden has always wanted to do. He's always wanted to have friendlier relations with Iran, and this predates his time with the Obama administration. It is one of his hobby horses. So it's best to keep an eye on that on that front. The second story, switching tracks here, that I mentioned, and I think this one's going to play into foreign policy as well, is the question of what role did China play in the release of COVID-19? We know they lied. We know that they did very little to help prepare the world for something that came out of their country. But what role did they really play here? Was it, you know, a natural thing where a disease leaped from one species, animal species to another, or did this come from their lab? I have increasingly come to the belief that this has, this is a lab leak of some form, and I 
don't see the evidence for a natural leap from a bat to human. Yes, that happens. There's no evidence that this happened in this specific case. All the evidence, once you line up what we know about COVID-19, what we know about where it first started popping up, everything points to this lab in Wuhan. Literally everything points there. So again, the Wall Street Journal, they had another exclusive report this week on this exact front, and they are adding to the increasing level of information that we have coming out that suggests there's a whole lot of smoke around the lab leak theory, and in fact, there's probably some, there's so much smoke that there has to be some flames here, whereas if you look at the the option of the leap of bats to humans, where it just occurred naturally, and we just got unlucky as the human race, right, with this pandemic... There's no evidence over there. There's no smoke. There's no fire. There's no spark. There's nothing. There's nothing pointing to that theory. So, here is what the Wall Street Journal report uh, mentioned in there. I'm going to skip through some of this. I'm not going to read through all of it because not all of it is as important as some of the other things. But here are some of the top-line things you need to learn from that. They start out by saying, three researchers from China's Wuhan Institute of Virology became sick enough in November of 2019 that they sought hospital care, according to previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence reports that could add weight to growing calls for a fuller probe of whether COVID-19 escaped from the laboratory. The details of the reporting go beyond a State Department fact sheet issued during the final days of the Trump administration, which said that several researchers at the lab, a center for the study of coronaviruses and other pathogens, became sick in autumn 2019 with, quote, symptoms of consistent with both COVID-19 and common seasonal illness. The disclosure of the number of researchers the timing of their illnesses, and the hospital visits come on the eve of a meeting of the World Health Organization's decision-making body, which is expected to discuss the next phase of an investigation into COVID-19's origins. Current and former officials familiar with the intelligence about the lab researchers expressed differing views about the strength of supporting evidence for the assessment. One person said it was provided by an international partner and was potentially significant but still needed further investigation and additional corroboration. Another person described the intelligence as stronger. Quote, The information that we had coming from the various sources was of exquisite quality. It was very precise. What it didn't tell you was exactly why they got sick, end quote, he said, referring to the researchers. November 2019 is roughly when many epidemiologists and virologists believe SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind the pandemic, first began circulating around the central Chinese city of Wuhan, where Beijing says that the first confirmed case was a man who fell ill on December 8, 2019. The Wuhan Institute hasn't shared raw data, safety logs, and lab records on its extensive work with coronaviruses and bats, which many consider the most likely source of the virus. And even though, you know, and I'm breaking apart from the port here, even though the lab hasn't shared any of that, we know that they were studying this stuff. We know they were doing this, and we know that they were likely not following protocols here. So, uh, there's one other thing I think we need, you, we need to highlight here on this before going into some other things here. Um, the report adds the following. The, the State Department fact sheet issued during the Trump administration, which drew on classified intelligence, said... Quote, the, U the U.S. government has reason to believe that several researchers inside the Wuhan Institute of Virology became sick in autumn of 2019 before the first identified case of the outbreak, with symptoms consistent with COVID-19 and seasonal illnesses. 
The January 15th fact sheet added this fact, raises questions about the credibility of Dr. Xi, and criticized Beijing for its deceit and disinformation, while acknowledging that the U.S. government hasn't determined exactly how the pandemic began. The Biden administration hasn't disputed any of the assertions in the fact sheet, which current and former officials say was vetted by U.S. intelligence agencies. The fact sheet also covered research activities at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, its alleged cooperation on some projects with Chinese military, and accidents at other Chinese labs. So that last point there is important because China has had other viruses leak out from their labs which have infected and killed people. I believe the first version of SARS was one of these. And so this is something that has happened in the past. It is likely it could happen again. And it's important to note here, because that report, the, this Wall Street Journal report goes on, it quotes Biden administration officials who talk about, well, that fact sheet from the Trump administration, it was kind of politicized. And, you know, you don't, it's made our jobs more difficult. Really, what they're saying is they're not disputing anything in it. In fact, no one can really dispute anything that's in that report, that fact sheet. And it's backed up here by some of the other things that you're saying in this Wall Street Journal report. What they're really saying is that this makes our job easier because it makes us have to confront China. Because if this came out of a lab in China, you have to confront them over it. You just have to. You can't just move on and pretend nothing happened, which is exactly what the Biden administration wants to do. So when they talk about politicizing things here, they're talking about that they would have to actually take action here, and they don't want to. And again, so, you know, if you if you heard the first part of, of this Wall Street Journal story and thought it found familiar, it's probably because you heard that fact sheet, or you heard or read things from Senator Tom Cotton, because he was talking about the theory of a lab leak being an option back in March and April of twenty nine of twenty twenty, I should say. Uh, we had people who visited this lab in it was 2018, 2019, somewhere around in there. And they talked about it not being a safe place to conduct research and were warning that, you know, things like this could happen. So it, with Tom Cotton and, and, you know, he wrote the op-ed that got him in all kinds of trouble with the New York Times early, or Wall Street Journal. I forget which way, which place he published the opinion on the on the lab, but... Everyone said that, you know, this is just a conspiracy theory and you just need to ignore it. Well, that's very clearly not the case. This is very clearly not a conspiracy theory because all the evidence points this direction. It looks very much like Chinese researchers developed a far more lethal version of a coronavirus than were studying it for its potential to infect and kill humans, and then it got loose. In fact, this this note here, I mean, what China's always maintained is that the first known case happened in December. What this intelligence says is that this happened in November. And what's key here is that it suggests that researchers were sick and went to the hospital, and that that's how it spread. Now, there are obviously some issues with that because if you if the researchers suspected that they might have had you know something that escaped from the lab it doesn't make sense for them to go to a, to a hospital um, but the thing about covid-19 is that the base symptoms are going to look something similar to like a flu, especially early on. And if you remember, early on, if you were looking at you know differences of you know what's the difference between a coronavirus and the flu and a common cold, things like that, people largely couldn't tell the difference. That's why we needed this testing. And so one of the the kickbacks to this report is people said, well, it's unlikely that the researchers would have gone to a hospital because if they had COVID nineteen. 
they wouldn't have gone to a regular hospital. They would have gone back to their research place. But they might not have known that they had COVID-19 when they went to the hospital and had a very severe version of an illness. And then, you know, if you're a researcher and you had it there and you go to a hospital or you went other places, then it makes sense how this thing could have escaped. Then that guy in the market, he could have gotten it from them at the hospital. He could have gotten it in passing. It could have been something like that. And the transmission path is far shorter. Because if you're saying this leapt from bats in a cave in China, the place where we know that happens is about 1,500 miles away from Wuhan, China. And there is no chain of evidence that is found, and not even China has been able to provide any evidence of how bats 1,500 miles away got to Wuhan and infected people with a specific virus here. There's no evidence of that. Whereas we have reports here that researchers in this lab are sick, they were going, they were, they were going to a hospital. That would give you a very clear way for this virus to spread. And we know that when it gets into a situation like a hospital, I mean, and these are the hospitals would not be what we have now where people were, you know, were highly masked, all those kinds of things where precautions would have been taken. They would have treated it like a normal respiratory disease, something like a cold, a flu or something else, because that's what the symptoms would have matched up with. You wouldn't have known to test for a COVID-19. You would have looked for something else, which would have given this thing an easier time to spread. So that is why I look at this lab leak theory and I say, well, this makes a ton of sense because it fills in all the holes. Obviously, you don't have everything filled out here and you can point to questions of things that have happened here, but there are far fewer questions about the lab leak theory than there are the issue of this jumping from an animal in China. And, and here's the thing. Not only can, is China not offering up any evidence on the, the animal leap theory, they've gone so far to suggest their own conspiracy theory is that this came out of some factory in Maryland in the United States. There is literally no evidence that that's the case. You couldn't track down a single atom of evidence that that's the case. And if it was the case, we would have seen cases here in the United States of COVID-19 before China. This is not something that you would have seen, you know, pop it around here. It would originate in the United States and then pop out in China. It originated in China. You have to look at that virology institute and you have to look at how they got it and what was happening at that time. And everything that we look at Every time we peel apart more layers to the story, the more the lab theory fits and the less likely any other theory could be. And it's also worth noting here, the only people who continue pushing the theory that this came from bats sold in a wet market are the scientists with connections to the Wuhan lab in question, or they're with the WHO, or they're with China itself, or there's some combination of overlap between all those categories. They all have some kind of conflict here that... When you really break it down, it, it makes sense why they would say that, but it, it, they're saying it without evidence here. And so when you see the press cite, well, you know, scientists say X, you have to ask, which scientists are they asking? Because not all scientists say the same thing. Those with none of those types of connections, who have no connections to the Wuhan Institute, who have no connections to the WHO or no connections to China, they are far more open to this theory because it makes far more sense when you line up the data. If you've got sending these conflicts, you're more likely to say, well, you know, this is probably some crazy theory where it jumped from bats, even though there's literally no evidence that's the case. So, again, no conspiracy theory here either. I think it's 
Very telling this week that even Anthony Fauci was saying that the lab theory needed to get investigated, reversing his previous tune on these on this story and these matters, especially as he's been getting drilled over and over again in before Congress. And I think the key to understanding his shift in tone here and what he's saying is it's less about his shift here and what he's saying and more on the lines of, well, if he's shifting now, why would he refuse to acknowledge us this before? It's like masks, you know, vaccines, herd immunity, all these various things. He always changes his tune, even though we always know that he was lying beforehand. And so it's more interesting in this case, why did he choose to lie in this case? And why is he changing his tune now? Because we know he will say anything. So the real issue here is why has he changed his tune on the lab leak theory? And why is it coming now? That's going to have to be dug out in the coming weeks, months, and even years. But I, I don't take his his shift here as proof positive that the lab leak theory is true. Is true. I think you can look at the evidence independent of him. I think it's more telling that he's decided to shift his tone now. Also, right before this, you know, this the WHO is looking into how it, how it's going to maneuver this because. The WHO and its links with China, it, it, it wants to, to say, oh, yeah, this left from bats, and it wants to support China on this. The problem is that China has literally offered not a shred of evidence. And so if you're going to go with that theory, you have to present it without presenting any evidence. It's entirely a theory with no evidence to back it. Because one of the ways you prove that this thing jumped from one animal species to another is that you offer up the species or the animal in question that had it. Because if one had it, several did. And so you can point to the jump by finding out those that have it and then going forth from there. And after over a year of dealing with this, remember this was November and December of 2019. So we're about a year and a half now into this from China's perspective. They don't have, they don't have a single animal that has the genetic markers that says this leapt from bats to humans. Not one. And so the WHO can't really push this report forward because they literally have no evidence. So that's one of the reasons I think we're here right now. You, you can't tell people that's the case if you can't even offer even the slightest shred of evidence. They can't even throw up so smokescreen at this point because the lab leak theory is so compelling and China has offered literally Nothing. So, between this and the Hamas-Iran connection storylines, I think these are things that the press has tried to push aside. I mean, the lab leak theory in particular is just egregious because people were calling it as conspiracy theory. You had your CNNs, your Jake Tappers of the world. All of them tried to say this was a conspiracy theory when they themselves never looked into it. They just repeated the first person they came to that was willing to say, oh, Donald Trump doesn't know what he's talking about here, when U.S. intelligence was already saying this was the case. But they were quick to report any of these scientists connected with the lab and say, well, yeah, these guys, yeah, they know what they're talking about, and they obviously can't have any conflicts. They were, the press repeated what they said, and in the end, I th- all these people deserve to be fired because they have led America down this path of believing the wrong thing now for more than a year. And it's increasingly, increasingly clear that it is more likely the lab leak theory was true, and anyone who suggested otherwise was trying to hide the truth here. So... 
that's the deal with those two stories. I wanted to do updates on those. Those are pretty big news updates on that front. I'm going to take a quick break here. We'll, then afterwards, we'll do the COVID-19 update. So I brought the COVID-19 update back this week. And just like we've been doing normally, when we had this segment, we'll jump into the latest numbers and go through everything. So the latest numbers on testing, we're finally seeing a drop in the number of tests that we're doing on a weekly basis. And this is a good thing. So for the past two or three months, we've stayed largely in the 1.4 to 1.5 million range on tests. So it's around 1.5 on a good day. One more typical day is around 1.45 with the occasional fluctuations that you have to factor in for weather, holidays, and other things. But now the seven-day average has clearly dropped, and it's dropped to around 1 million tests in a given day. So the trend line suggests that it's continued continue to fall here, and I think this is a good thing. At its peak, we were doing around 2.2 million a day, so we now dropped about in half, a little less, more than half, actually. And I think this is we this is needed to happen for some time. I've actually been kind of confused why the testing didn't drop further, but what has happened here, and what I've learned on the testing front, is that we are still doing active testing, even of people who are already vaccinated. And so there are some events, there's some businesses, and there's some organizations that still do active testing, and that has kept and inflated our testing numbers up, even though some of these people are fully vaccinated. And again, that makes zero sense, because if we're fully vaccinated, it doesn't matter what your results are on that front. We And so we're still doing dumb things like that. So if, for instance, uh, baseball does this, even if the players are fully vaccinated, you're still seeing the testing of players. And so that's how we got stories of this past week or a couple weeks ago now, where the Yankees reported several positive tests and they were going to uh, keep those players quarantined and away from the others. But that that also didn't make any sense because those players were vaccinated and it didn't make sense to continue to test them because they were not spreading it to others. They were asymptomatic. They didn't even know it. I think one maybe had uh, mild symptoms, but even then it wasn't enough to slow him down. And so... These are the kinds of things where you don't need to test these kinds of people because they are, in fact, vaccinated. They're not the ones you have to worry about. It's the unvaccinated people. And so if your full team is vaccinated, you're in good shape. So a lot of things we're doing right now, there's still probably some slack in the system where there's a lot of excess testing happening. And so the more we cut that out, the better off we're going to be in the long run. And we're going to get a more accurate picture of things from that front. And also, it's just testing is not that important anymore. This is not the thing where... We've needed it. So we needed this you know, a year ago in March. We do not need it now. Now the point is vaccinations, 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 which means testing is not important at all. I mean, not even in the slightest. And so I said at the outset of the year, once vaccinations started rolling in, there would be a point in time where testing eventually became the thing that was not important anymore. We're at that point now, and I would hope that it falls even more. Even better, though, even with all those those tests that we're still doing, around a million a day, uh, the positivity rate on those tests is still dropping. So the current seven-day moving average on the positivity rate sits at an all-time low of 2.6%. Previously, when we'd hit lulls, you know, post-spring, post-summer, uh, even, you know, even after the, the plunge down from the winter, the lowest number we could hit was around 4%. And now we're at 2.6. 
And so when we hit our peak in January, the 70 average on positivity was sitting close to 14%. So the trend lines right now suggest that these numbers will continue dropping too. And that tells us the virus is struggling to spread and can't find people to infect. And it can't, it just can't spread. And I know this actual number on the positivity front is actually lower too because, like I said, we're pointlessly testing some of these people who don't need to be tested anymore. And so your positivity rate is going to eventually start dropping even more here. I mean, it's it's dropping already. All the trend lines suggest that we're going to fall below 2.5% this next week. We're probably about two weeks away from dropping below, dropping officially below one, you know, two percent into the one, you know, one and change percent. So, again, these are just fantastic numbers. We're doing the exact same thing that Israel and the United Kingdom have done, where you have the once you really hit the fifty percent mark on your vaccinations and up, you really start to see these numbers fall down as your vaccination numbers continue to climb. Now, of course, if you have this lowering positivity rate, that also means your new daily cases are going to be dropping. So right now, our new daily cases, so the seven-day average on new cases coming in on a, day, on a daily basis have dropped, and they're, they're continuing to drop, and we're only bringing in 25,000 a day. Now, during the peak, 25,000 in a day is what some states were doing by themselves. I mean, at, our, at the absolute peak, we were seeing close to 300,000 a day. If you look over in India, they're doing, they've been pushing 400,000 in a given day or more. And so to do, as a country in the United States, only 25,000 in a given day, that is phenomenal. We are down 90%, more than 90% actually now. By the time you listen to this, I know we'll be more than 90% down from our January peaks. We've never hit numbers like this as low as a nation. You would have to go before, you know, in the early days of March when we were doing no testing and it was just impossible to hit, you know, any lower number. So these are the best numbers that we've ever hit, and it, all indications are that it's going to continue to improve. Hospitalizations also continue to be a very bright point. Those numbers continue to fall as well. Right now we're sitting at 23,198 active hospitalizations across the country. This is the lowest number we've ever reported since the spring of 2020 when we were just learning how to find COVID-19 positive people. So again, we're almost about to drop below 23,000 on the active hospitalizations front. The big goal there is to get it to fall below 20,000, which we've never done, Uh, you know, absent the run up in the the spring of 2020, because that's basically what we're having to compare it to now, because we're now below points. We're below any lull point that we had in the spring in the summer, in the fall, anything where cases were on a downtrend, we've never seen these low levels. And so that's the only comparison here. So the next number for it to drop through is going to be 20,000. Uh, you're probably looking at, a, depending on how fast these, these start coming off, you're probably looking at a week or two before that actually starts to happen. Um, the same thing is true of the ICU cases. So these are your worst of the worst cases. They've fallen to around 5,500 active ICU cases in the past few weeks. Or two months ago, I think we were closer to 7,700 7, or closer to 8,000, somewhere around in that range. I have to go back and check my numbers on that. I didn't look them up. But we have knocked out a number of the ICU cases, and those are continuing to fall as well. So when you have, you know, lower case numbers, when you have fewer hospitalizations, fewer ICU cases, that by definition means that your deaths have to eventually start falling, and they are doing that as well. So the seven-day average on deaths is currently 550 a day, in and around that number. Um, 
so we in our peak, we were uh, you know thirty five hundred people a day were dying practically, and now that number is only five hundred fifty. That is obviously still too many. We obviously want that number to fall. Uh, over this past week, we crossed the the mark of over more than six hundred thousand people having died from the virus. That's obviously a bad number. Uh, but again, these numbers are falling, and that is a good thing. And, and I'll also say this, when you're talking about deaths, I really do think when you look at the early models, even the mid-range models in the summer, if you're projecting into now, those models were predicting in... So if you went into March and April, and you looked at the models of how many deaths were expected from this virus, they were predicting 500 to 600,000 people would die by the end of the summer of 2020. That didn't happen. They were expecting millions of people to have been dead by the end of the year of 2020. That didn't happen. If you projected even further out to now, you were talking, you know, multiple millions of people having died from this. And so the fact that we have beat those estimates and stayed... Right now, we're at 600,000. That's obviously going to sneak up, or I think we're at officially 604,000, somewhere right in there. That's obviously going to continue to sneak up here a little bit, but that number of around 600,000 is actually a best-case scenario here, I think, with this virus. Because if you're going to say that we could have done better, I think you have to point out a definitive policy that would have reduced actual deaths. And the only policy that would have reduced deaths at any point in 2020 was an active vaccine on the scene. No other, you know, policy that you could put into place would have done the same. Because, and people, you know, they say, well, you know, people could have worn masks. Like, other than that. Masking is a marginal policy. It only helps at the very thin margins. It does not, it is not an absolute thing that's going to drive down numbers. It is only going to slow down the spread of the virus. It does not prevent the spread of the virus. Vaccines prevent the spread and prevent death. Masks do not. You have to get that clear in your head because there are a lot of people right now who believe the exact opposite. They believe they can be fully vaccinated and still die, and they think their mask will protect them when it's not going to. Masks remove problems at the margins and help control a spread, but it does not prevent a spread. And so we've seen straight up, you know, mask mandates do not equate to people wearing masks. Basking is always a policy that people look in their area and decide to follow. And you can look at (laughs) the distribution of where deaths are spread, where cases are. None of these policies mattered on that front. The virus spread through every last single state in the country throughout the winter all at once, and it didn't matter what policy you had in place. It didn't matter who was running your state. You still had to deal with the virus in the winter. And I just don't think there's a way you can avoid that from happening because I look at every other country on Earth and they have to deal with the same thing. It doesn't matter what kind of country they are. It doesn't matter what kind of healthcare system they have. It doesn't matter what kind of leadership they have. Everyone handles it roughly the same way. It's just a matter of when your waves hit. So that being said, I do think this is probably the best case scenario here. I don't know how you drive down these numbers any further than they are without having earlier access to the vaccine. And that could be a thing we need to look at. 
because we did this in a record amount of time. Where you're talking un- in under a year, we went from nothing with a novel virus we'd never seen to a full-on vaccine. I have friends calling this an experimental vaccine, and that's just flat out not true. This thing has been through all the rings that you have to jump through for a vaccine for any other vaccine. We just condensed it into a year and cut out all the dumb red tape and bureaucracy. If you look at what slows down a normal vaccine and can take it more than 10 years to get there, you would shake your head in shame and realize that the FDA and CDC are preventing you from getting life-changing medicine in your life. We've known this for some time. It was one of the things that when Donald Trump was running for office, he talked about giving people more access to drugs that just couldn't get out of the three-ring circus that are these federal bureaucracies. And when we had to, we just said, okay, you guys get out of the way. We're now going to get the what we need as fast as we need it, and it's going to go through all the safety tests. And it did. You're talking three phases here. We had a full idea, and even when you had people freaking out about this stupid freakout with Johnson & Johnson, it wasn't even a real one. More people are getting blood clots from COVID-19 than they ever will from these vaccines, and there's still no causal relationship that's been proven between the two of them. You can probably look at it as happening as from some interaction between that person's medicines that they're having instead of the vaccine. So these things are safe, they're not experimental, and they are the things that have prevented the spread. And long term, if we, we did this in under a year, you might want to say, well, you know, in a pandemic setting, we really need to bring this, we really need to get this done. We cannot wait a year for a solution to appear. We need six months or less. And I actually think that is probably a viable thing. You need to say, in a pandemic setting, we have to have a vaccination ready to go in six months or less. And so we need to come up with a way to accelerate the most accelerated version of a vaccine run through here in a pandemic that we've ever done. I keep calling this the Apollo program because that's literally what it is here. This is the medical version of Apollo program where it has done something that humanity has never done, and it has worked far better than anyone could have predicted. But it can be improved upon, and I and I would say that going forward here, and I and I do think Congress should do this. I think Congress should have a full on nine eleven style you know commission to go through literally everything about this and point out the good, bad, and the ugly about this. And I and I would, one of my recommendations would be we need to find out a way to deliver something, deliver two things. One, a testing regime, because the FDA and CDC put us woefully behind. I've long said it was they, they put us behind three to four months. Looking at what our numbers were once we had adequate testing in the millions, by, and that wasn't until the late summer, they put us behind by about six months with what they did. Now, if you really want to break it down. But given that, I, I think you have to have an accelerated version where you have adequate testing in, in less than three months, and have it ready to go on the spot and have, you know, make sure all the red tape gets cut to make sure that happens. And then on your vaccines, you need to be able to pump those out in less than six months. I think that is a given, given where we are on a medical technology level, I think demanding that this be six months or less is the future goal here, because that is the only way you lower that number. That is the only way you lower the the number of 600,000 people who have died from this. You cut out the amount of time that a virus has to spread in a given community. That's the only way to do it. Masking and all these other things, you know, 
social distancing, those types of things. Those are great for what they do, but those are only helping you contain the spread. They don't flatten the spread. They only contain it. We can do better than that. I think you can come up with with a system here that says our goal is six months. How do we streamline this process and shove it through? And what other regulatory hurdles need to be cut? Because it's very clear, given how good these works, you don't need this much red tape from the FDA and CDC. I mean, that is probably my most libertarian point coming away from this, is that there is a lot of uselessness coming from our federal bureaucracies on this point, and we probably need to do more to get rid of some of that because these people are not doing anything of value. In fact, they've been an impediment to us getting out of this pandemic for the better part of a year now. So I think the only way to achieve a lower 600,000 number is speeding up vaccines. You're not going to get it through any of these other, you know, any of these other matters. It's like, you, yeah, I know some people are going to say, well, you know, we need to have better mandates. Oh, we need to have forcibly shut more businesses down. We needed to shut the economy down more. No, those only control a spread. The only way you end a pandemic is by cutting it down at its source, which is through a vaccine or some other medical intervention that eliminates that virus or that medical issue as a threat to the human race. That is the only way. And all these other things are just control measures. And if you believe more in the control measures than you do the hard medicine and the hard science, you are actually worse than some of these anti-vaxxers. You are the problem in this country. And so I would like to see us do a lot better here by pushing forward on a better front. That was a long rant that I did not anticipate going going into here. But one of the reasons that I bring that up is because Donald Trump did do that. He looked at this, and through Operation Warp Speed, we focused on cranking out the vaccines because that was the only path to actually end the thing, not all these other measures. And as I've watched the Biden administration focus on this same issue when they were handed the keys and everything was solved, and then I've watched them largely fail in that procedure, one, by letting the Johnson & Johnson pause happen, and then two, not pushing some of these other providers to get their vaccines on the market. I mean, the main we're at the end of May here. At the end of May, had you asked me two or three months ago, I would have expected us to have Novavax on the market right now because that's where all the evidence was pointing. Now, I realize they have pulled back and they've delayed some of this because they want to do some research on some of the variants. That's fine and dandy, but their early reports suggested that this thing was as good as Johnson & Johnson or maybe closer to like an AstraZeneca or, or Moderna on that front. It is a good vaccine, and it needs to be out on the market. And the Biden administration has provided no evidence that they have been interested in putting another vaccine on the market. And they really should be, because even if we don't use it as Americans— We can use our contracts with these companies to buy up the doses that we have and then get the rest of the world vaccinated more quickly, too. We can give them away, which will give us goodwill in the world, which is a good thing to have when you're watching China blow theirs up. So I've watched how the Biden administration has handled this, and they were supposed to be, you know, these more technocratic people who handled crises better. And I've watched them faceplant every step of the way. And I compare this to, you know, Trump was focused on cutting out the bureaucracy and just getting to answers. And I think that's what you have to make a future response more like. You do not want a Joe Biden handling your pandemic response because he doesn't do anything. At best, all he said, all he's done is continue, where he's done his best is just continue what Trump was already doing. 
Now, this is not political here. If you go back into the campaigns and you ask Joe Biden, what is your plan to handle the pandemic? It's a copy and paste version of what Donald Trump was already doing. He didn't have a plan. And it's very clear his people don't have a plan and they don't know how to do what they're doing. And I think you need to have that commission in Congress to go into this and say, okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z. How do we make our response better? And specifically, how do we get to a place where we can institute a pandemic response that gets us a, a an answer in the future in six months or less? Now, I think there's a lot of things that can go into that. Part of it is utilizing some of this research that we're doing in, in breakthrough technology on some of these and, and gain a function research that we're doing on some of these viruses. But there's things to do here that can be improved. If we do not improve, that is a direct failure on our part and specifically the political leaders we have in place. So, all that said, the last piece of, of, of data we're going to hit here are, are the actual vaccination front. Um, we've administered overall in the United States 285 million doses of vaccines. There are about 70 million free doses sitting around unused, and you can walk in and get one just about anywhere. And I highly recommend you do that because at this point it's an insurance policy. If you're young and you're more likely to be, you know, it's just it, it's not going to impact you quite to the degree unless you're above the age of 50. Um, I would just say go get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's an insurance policy. It's you know that it's that thing that prevents the last two to three percent of those people who are going who may end up in the hospital or may have a severe case or may knock themselves out of work for a few days. Getting that is going to prevent that from happening. You're going to be fine, and it's going to knock that situation out where you're just not going to have to worry about COVID-19 ever again. I I generally believe now, the more research that comes out, that the immunity that you're going to get from these vaccines is going to last for decades because what we've seen from SARS-1, people who had SARS-1 survived, their immunity that they have is still good now 20, 30 years later. I think that's going to be the true for this one as well. So having that insurance policy long-term is going to be good because you're just not going to have to fear this thing as it pushes through all its various variants, and you can just travel and live your life, and this is no longer an issue at all in any shape, form, or fashion. And even if you do encounter it, you already have a base level of immunity built up, so you're going to defeat it even faster. So that's why I recommend getting it. It is the ultimate insurance policy that's going to eliminate a threat that came out of a lab in China designed to harm you and me. So that's my pitch on that front. I give it all the time, free of charge. Thanks for stopping by. Um, of the 285 million doses we've done, though, we have vaccinated 49.2% of the total U.S. population, and that's these type of people have had at least one dose of a vaccine. If you want fully vaccinated, we've hit 39.2%, so we've almost hit 40% of the total population. As I've said, I, you know there are reasons to look at total population. I have tended not to look at total population. Right now, the most important numbers are how many people in the adult population in the eligible category have had at least one dose of the vaccine. That is the most important category. Now, the CDC has changed this a little bit. They've added a new category, and they're now measuring. They have our category where they can measure this from 12 years old and up, since you now have Pfizer offered up to 12 and up. That is obviously not everyone. Um, but if you measure from that, 58.2% of the eligible population has now had at least one dose of a vaccine. 46.4% has fully vaccinated. If you measure from the original adult population, which was measured from 18 and above, 
and they've had the longest chance to get one of these vaccinations, uh, 61.3% have had at least one dose of vaccine. So that is my goal on the one dose, was always to get to that 60% mark. We've cleared that hurdle now. That is why you're seeing cases drop so low now. So the more that number inches up, the more you're going to see all you know your positivity rates, your case numbers, your deaths, all that's going to continue to fall. Um, so 50% now are fully vaccinated. So they've had either a Johnson Johnson or two doses of one of the mRNA vaccines. The most important statistic of all, though, 85.4% of those 65 and above have now had at least one vaccination dose. 74% are fully vaccinated. So the elderly population, 65 and above, they are basically at a version of herd immunity now. Um, and that's using basically any measure that you could give. I think it is very interesting that you have all these polls that suggest there's a very high degree of vaccine hesitancy. But if you ask someone to describe a vaccine-hesitant Trump, Trump voter, which is usually what they're thinking of, they're going to describe a white voter who is 65 and above. And more than 85% of those people have gotten at least one vaccination dose. And I just... That is, that is one of those things where I think you just need to toss out these polls because I don't think they're accurately reflecting what is reality on the ground when 85-plus percent of an entire demographic is now vaccinated. That's going to cut across every religion, political, any dividing line that you can think of. That's going to cut across it because 85% is 85%. That is just a ton of people in a given demographic category. Now, I've argued for some time that the important number on all this is 50%. If you look at Israel's numbers, once they crossed that 50% mark, their numbers fell off the side of a cliff, and they basically have had no... I mean, they're bouncing along, you know, a few cases, a handful of cases a day, maybe maybe a death or two, maybe a hospitalization. So it's it's that's how far down the numbers have gotten in Israel, and that started happening really once they crossed that 50% mark. We've done that... And in the adult population, we're at 61%. So that is why you're seeing these numbers really, really fall here because this vaccine, or all the vaccines, are preventing the spread of the virus. That is what needs to be drilled through people's head here. In a vaccinated community, the virus cannot spread. That is the very clear point here because if that was not true, your positivity rate will remain the same. It is not. It is falling. And that tells you in a vaccinated community, you do not have spread of the virus. So all the numbers on the COVID-19 front, they're good. There's not really any bad numbers. I'm not going to go into this week the, the, you know, the rate. I don't think it's that important to look at right now because we have high enough numbers generally everywhere. Um, but this is why everything's opening up. We are fully vaccinated. We're not fully vaccinated, you know, there's still a lot of room you can grow here, but we are vaccinated to the point where everything can fully open and I'm not concerned about anything. We're going to be much closer to 60, maybe 75% of the total population being having at least one dose. I mean, you're probably going to hit that 75% by midsummer, having at least one dose. And at that point, that is really going to be close to game over for this virus because it is going to be very difficult for it to spread when there's so much immunity sitting out there. In fact, if you some of the modeling that I've been watching and reading now that tries to factor in natural immunity, which is people who've had it versus people who are vaccinated, it suggests that we are actually overall in our society closer to around 70 percent 
uh, overall immunity. That is why this virus is struggling to spread so much, because there is so much now immunity throughout the entire country. And one of the other re- reasons that I'm, I'm very positive on our trend lines right now is that I think we're actually going to be close to vaccinating 50 to 60% of the entire world with at least one dose by the end of the year. I think that's really where we're going to, we're going to be. A lot of the experts, they suggested this wouldn't happen until maybe 2022, 2023 at the earliest. All the numbers suggest that's untrue. All the numbers suggest that by the end of the year, we're going to be close to hitting at least 75% of the, of the planet with at least one dose. And I think that's a very good metric to watch because I think those numbers are going to go up. So, again, the experts were overly pessimistic and they were wrong. And the thing to remember about that is that when you're talking about a vaccine rollout, that's not an epidemiology, that's not a virology, that's not even a medical question. That's a supply chain question. None of these so-called healthcare experts or public health experts know a single thing about supply chain economics. That's been very clear that this entire thing. All the bad predictions, you know, early on about the vaccine rollout, they were all bad. We're down to, you know, every prediction that Biden has made has just basically been what is the most conservative number I can come up with and guaranteed to hit to make myself look better. And he's been able to hit it just because through sheer inertia we've hit there. All these experts have been wrong on this because they don't know the basics of supply chain economics and how, statistically, when things improve, it brings down the date of when things are going to be finished. So, again, this is one of the greatest vaccine rollouts in history. It is the best one in history. There's no question about that. If you look at something like the Spanish flu, that was literally a multi-year process of it sweeping across the entire planet. We're cutting that thing dramatically down in the amount of time we're going to have to deal with this. So this is a very, very good thing. The numbers are very good, and we are making very good progress. So continue to go get vaccinated. You are doing your part to ensure that the lab release from China is ending in America because it was our ingenuity, our scientists, and our efforts to get people these doses that is ending a pandemic. I think China caused it, and I think America ended it. And that is one of the greatest things that America has ever done. And now the next phase of this is making China answer for what they did here. So that's all for the podcast this week. This week's light item, again, I said at the top, it's about the Nashville Predators. And I was struggling to even get this podcast out the door because I've had to endure two hockey games from the Nashville Predators this week that both went into double overtime. Both of the home games for us, games three and four, went into double overtime, nearly the very end of double overtime in both cases, and the games ended in very dramatic fashion. So if you've never experienced playoff hockey, it is literally the most terrifying thing ever as a fan because it's it's sudden death in overtime in hockey. The first team to score wins which admittedly is a very fair way to do an overtime. I think it's the fairest of all the overtimes. So double overtime, though, that means you've already endured one period of constant close calls. And in the second thing, when things were in overtime, double overtime again, the Predators were in danger of going into triple overtime because we were very, there were only like four minutes left in this second overtime period. So when we're ticking up to the end here, everyone's exhausted. The following exchange happened. To go to the bench as the Predators bring it in. Long shot stabbed away by Nadelkovich. Into the slot, the shot, they score! Nashville has tied up the series 
Here's a look at what happened. Luke Cunnan broke his stick, had to go to the bench to get another stick, which is why he's coming in up high in the zone, and they lost sight of him. He scored the opening goal of the game. What a beautiful feed from the corner up to Luke Cunnan. Quick shot. Been really tough for these guys to beat Nedeljkovic tonight. Been tough to beat either of these goaltenders. Hate to see either of them give up the overtime game winner because they have been so phenomenal. But it's an interesting play. Luke Cunnan breaks his stick. You saw it in the neutral zone. He had to rush to the bench. Instead of changing, he grabs a stick. Kudos to the equipment manager who found his stick in a split second. Gave it to him. Comes in for the game winner. Some big time hugs for Luke Cunnan. So that was the that was the the Canadian call of that. I couldn't track down the local one because everyone on, I just couldn't get an audio for the, the podcast. But everyone on the local call was one ecstatic about the win, but also elated that we had finally ended the period and didn't have to go back anymore because everyone was just flat out exhausted. I mean, it, people could not even hit or skate fast at the end of that match because they were moving so slow. And so I let it play a little long there because I think it's interesting to listen how boring the Canadian hockey announcers sound while there is a literal party happening in Nashville in the background with country music and all kinds of good music playing. So and people immediately went out on Broadway and just had a good time because that's the kind of game that was. So... Again, it's going to take a little while to recover from this. It's a seven-game series. There's a game on Tuesday, and the series is side 2-2. So if I sound you know, tired or emotionally exhausted at any point in this podcast, the Nashville Predators are why. Again, playoff hockey is here, and it's decided to put me and every other Nashville Predators fan through the ringer. But obviously, playoff hockey is the best, and I don't think there's any way you can deny that. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DvonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode. 